hardheads. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are in this wonderful world of ours. Welcome to the Hardheaded Sports Podcast, episode number 46, hosted by me, Nick Ryan. I don't know how many of you out there are huge coffee drinkers, but if you're like me, I'm a, I'm a pretty big coffee drinker, and, and I like to have cream and sugar in my coffee. I cannot drink it black. I've tried. Everybody's like, oh, you're going to love coffee so much more if you drink it black, and you know the cream and the sugar is not going to be as big of a problem for you. It's going to be better for you. It's going to be healthy for you. I've never been able to get along with that idea. I need at least some creamer in my coffee. So when I go to my local store... And I understand, you know, having all the cream and sugar is bad for you and your coffee. I'm consciously aware of that. You go to the store, you go and you pick out your creamer uh, when you're out. Uh, you just cycle through. And I don't know if it's just me, but I feel like there's a lack of options like in the middle. And what I mean by that, there's there's your sugar-free options. There's your, your you know, your low-calorie options at the bottom, which typically don't taste very good, you know. So you have the ones that either don't taste good or if you're one of those people that puts almond milk in your coffee... <laughs> Mom, I'm talking to you. Uh, <laughs> if you're one of those people that puts almond milk in your coffee, it's kind of just like, oh, that doesn't necessarily taste good either. So I need something that's got a little bit of sweetness to it, a little bit of flavor. But then on the complete other side of the spectrum, there's there's flavored coffee creamers, right? By, you know, uh, 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 International Delight, uh, Coffee Maker, yada, yada, that are these super sugary flavors. And I'm talking like cinnamon toast crunch blast i don't even know if it's called that but it's like there's a cinnamon toast crunch flavor there's a snickers flavor it's like almond joy coconut and then there's like confetti birthday cake and i'm like jesus christ this is this is this is coffee this is basically my breakfast i'm not trying to have a sweet tooth heart attack at nine o'clock in the morning so you know it's a struggle for me to find kind of like that middle tier of coffee creamer where it's like there's some flavor i can taste it it tastes good but it's not going to instantly give me a cavity when i uh when i make my cup of coffee in the morning uh that entire rant is inspired by coffee and me having my coffee this morning and me just wishing that uh, I didn't have to go too far on the scale one way or the other. Um, today's show, like the last show, is going to be segmented. And if you missed the last show, you're looking for a new explanation as to why the show has been segmented and recorded over the couple of days. is simply due to the fact that basketball is unpredictable. Basketball, especially when it comes to the NBA playoffs, momentum in certain series can swing uh, basically at a moment's notice basketball is one of those sports in which momentum changes constantly and i find it very very difficult to make organized takes about what i'm watching without having to go back and flip-flop my opinion later because i have seen something different or maybe i overlook something so i guess it's me just being more careful about my takes and me making takes over a couple of days as opposed to making them all in one go when recording the show during the morning uh, so maybe I just need to get over, you know, my fear of making an irrational take and just make the take and say, well, hey, this could change in the future, you know, so if, you know, if I see something that inspires a change of opinion, you know, that's going to be the case. So maybe I just need to get over that fear, but that's kind of why the shows are segmented right now, recorded over a couple of days. Uh, I've got a shorter show for you today. 
Good show, going to be talking about uh, the Clippers versus Mavericks. I know this is a little bit overdue again. I recorded that segment earlier in the week, so I recorded that actually on Tuesday or Wednesday when it was a little bit more relevant. This show is going to be coming out on Saturday. Uh, but we're going to be talking about the end of the Clippers Mavericks series, why Rick Carlisle is to blame for the demise or the choking, rather, of the Dallas Mavericks in that series. Going to talk about college football playoff expansion, which I'm so excited for. Oh, uh, you have no idea. And then we are going to talk about the Brooklyn Nets versus the Milwaukee Bucks series and why um, at this point the Bucks have already won game three but at the time of that recording it was 2-0 to the side of the Nets and I was judging what I had seen so far despite Giannis Antetokounmpo having a great game one he had a subpar game two and really the analysis of what James Harden said about Giannis all the way back in February of last year all the way back in February 2020 of him calling you know Giannis a seven foot you know athletic athlete who can just drive the paint and dunk him saying that's not really skillful you need to be able to have skill offensive skill in this game turns out uh, or James Harden was you know pretty dead on when it came to talking about Giannis so that's going to be all on the show today I am so excited to talk about this topic on the show today ladies and gentlemen uh, I was getting like a kid on Christmas morning. This this makes me happy more than anything ever could. This is Santa coming to town for me, ladies and gentlemen, because I'm a huge college football fan. I've worked in college sports. I still do work in college sports. Um, college football will always have, always have a special place in my heart, not only because I've been able to build up such a fandom for the sport, but I've also been able to, you know, watch and interview and learn and, and, and see these kids grow up and become mature football players. And that's always the best thing about my job. But regardless of that, I am so excited because the college football playoff committee is finally considering an expansion to a 12 team format or an additional team format for the college football playoff. And my only question about this is what took you so damn long? <laughs> This, this change is about two to three years overdue. It's going to take about two more years to fully implement into place because it's a great idea. Everything sounds great on paper, but there's a lot of TV deals to work out, a lot of money that has to be figured out how to be spent by all these Fortune 500 companies and, and big tech and, and, and uh, broadcasting networks and all that. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that's got to be figured out, but the idea is, is that there is going to be an expansion of the college football uh, playoffs. It's potentially going to be 12 teams that's the number that's you know cemented right now it could fluctuate depending on what they end up deciding but right now it's 12 teams the six highest ranked conference champion teams plus six spots at large uh, I'm assuming that's going to come from the top 25 rankings as well I am so excited for this this needed to happen because uh, every single time uh, ever since the college football playoff you know, system was created. It's always felt like there's been a conversation about whether or not there should be an additional expansion expansion to allow more teams than just four. Specifically during some semifinal games that were really lopsided, and you could definitely point to some other teams that didn't make the uh, the cut that said, "Oh, I think that team would have been a better matchup and would have you know had a better game against said team." And it's it's for that reason that I think that this is a really really good change. I I mean I don't need to tell you that this is a good change for college football. I feel like naturally, you know, the, the prospect of what an expansion is for the playoff system, more chances for upsets, more teams to get in, especially if you're a fan of a powerhouse school, like maybe an LSU and Oklahoma, um, uh, of a Florida, a Clemson, Michigan, Ohio state, um, maybe UCLA, some, uh, Stanford, uh, USC, some of the, uh, the PAC 12 teams, Oregon, 
you know, if you're a legacy, you know, powerhouse in college football for, I'd say, maybe like the past 20 or 30 years, and you have had trouble getting into the college football playoff because it's so difficult to get into, and it's basically at the will of, you know, the committee. And now this is really great. You have a chance to make the playoffs and really make your case. Uh, Texas A&M is another team that's been absolutely shafted by the system over the past couple of years. They've been some really good Texas A&M teams that have played a lot of good competition and have kind of been pushed aside by the committee because they have more than one loss. And that's the thing that I think I love the most about what this this new format would be. Again, it's the it's it's 12 teams right now, could change in the future, but it's the six highest ranked conference champions plus six at large spots. Not only does it give give, you know, group of 5 schools, lower caliber FBS schools a chance to upset in the playoffs give them a chance to even compete in the playoffs there's teams like coastal carolina like last year they went undefeated 11 and 0 uh they were a really great football team but because of the conference that they played in and there is such uh, you know power five conference bias when it comes to uh, the college football playoff committee they really stood no chance at getting into the college football playoff you know tournament and that's always been one of the huge knocks on the system is that, hey, there could be a really good Power 5, or no, excuse me, not Power 5, there could be a really good group of 5 team have probably one of the better seasons that they've ever had in the program, and they still will have negative chances of making the college football playoff because it's only four teams and because there's such bias on uh, teams that, gonna, that are going to put on the best show. There's teams that are going to make you the most money because this is a business again at the end of the day. There are going to be you know teams that get pushed aside for bigger schools. And now that's not going to be the case anymore. There's going to be more spots for teams to do more. And there's going to be less emphasis on losses. I think one of the things that irked me the most about the college football playoff system in the past is that it, there was such an emphasis on the loss how, you know, there's teams that are consistently playing in some extremely tough schedules, you know, and it fluctuates every year. Some years, the big Ten's more challenging. Some years, the ACC is more challenging. Some years, the SEC is more challenging. Consistently, the SEC is the more challenging conference. You have teams like Texas A&M. You've got teams like, um, you know, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, that consistently are around that bubble when you consider who is going to be on the edge of being cut out of the college football playoff. With the addition of these teams, there won't be that much stress, and the focus on the losses and what they mean for each program are not going to be as significant. You can more than likely have two losses on your record now, but can still consider to be a top 12 team in the country. Maybe, you know, it's not you know, the, the, you, maybe you're not a championship of your, a champion of your conference, but you are still one of the better six teams at large, and you do get a chance to compete in this expanded format. And I absolutely love that. I think it leads itself to some more, you know, diverse competition. It makes everything harder. And hopefully, what this is going to do is it's going to make us as fans feel more comfortable in the college football committee's picks. Because again, as I kind of started off this rabbit trail, this segment's a big rabbit trail. I didn't really prepare anything uh, because I, I already kind of knew where I wanted to steer this. You know, part of the problem with the college football playoffs so far has been, you know, the feeling as fans that the committee has been getting these choices wrong. And more or less, they have been taking uh, some chances with these teams and they have been choosing wrong. Um, 
losses won't kill you now when you start talking about the top 12. Uh, and now I think there's going to be an emphasis on playing more powerful, good teams to prove yourself to get into this big dance that they are creating as opposed to hyper-focusing on the loss and being worried that you're going to be bounced out when the reality is, is that even if you were bounced out, you could have been a better matchup in the college football playoff because... You know, out of the 21 games played in the college football playoff, there's been 21 games in total play so far, and that's including the title games. Six of those, only six, so six out of 21, that's maybe less than 30%, right? Six of those games have been one-score games. So that's what you would consider a good game, right? I would consider my definition of being a good game being a one-score game. Only six out of the 21 have been one-score games, with three of those coming in title games. Uh, Georgia versus Alabama, I think, is the one that everybody will remember the most. That was the game that Tua Tonga Viola came in for Jalen Hurts and won them that game in the championship. Um, 14 of those games, however, have been won by more than 14 points. Or, excuse me, 14 of those games have been won by 14 points or more. So, 14 of those games, by definition, if you consider a two-touchdown lead to be a blowout, uh, that's kind of a gray area, but just for the, the number's sake, I kind of had to generalize this. Um, you know, we could get more specific, but with that being said, two-touchdown games, 14 of the 21 college football playoff games have been Two, one by two touchdowns or more. Uh, and that's not exactly the closest games. That's not exactly what you want. Uh, there were a couple of games that were complete blowouts. So Clemson absolutely destroyed Notre Dame one year, 31 to nothing, 38 to nothing, if I remember correctly. You know, so there have been instances where we as college football fans have been watching these games, and it's very evident that at least in one of the college football playoff, you know, semifinal games, that one team is not deserving to be there. And there's another team that's outside of the bubble that could be shoved in that would have been better. And so that's where most of the advocates for has been coming when it comes to, uh, you know, advancing and overhauling the college football playoff system. And now they're finally considering it. And again, I'm as giddy as a kid on Christmas morning. This is absolutely the way to go. I don't care if it's eight teams. I don't care if it's 10 teams. I don't care if it's 12 teams. I don't care if it's 16 teams. Give more teams, especially group of five teams, a chance to make the big dance. It will only be good for the sport. More chance for upsets, more competition. And we as fans feel more, um, you know, confident that the teams that are making it all the way are truly the best teams in the country. And I think that's what's important because as I just kind of run through six of the games that have been played so far have been close. 14 of them have been not. Uh, there's obviously one game missing in that. I'm not sure which one it is, but regardless of that, what do you think about the college football playoff expanding its format? Let me know. I'm, I'm so excited for this. Um, there would be no limit on the number of participants from conferences, by the way. I'm just reading that in the notes here, and there's no league that would qualify automatically. So uh, less emphasis on conference bias, more emphasis on having more good teams in this tournament, and that's what we want. That's what we want as college football fans. Game three between the Nets and the Bucks is tonight. I would imagine that this is a must-win game for Giannis and the Milwaukee Bucks. If they fall down three games to nothing, the series is over, and I would imagine that they get swept. It already kind of looks like they're going to get swept. I mean, you don't lose the second game by 29 points and have a lot of confidence going into game three. And realistically speaking, I think we are seeing the exploitation of Giannis as a basketball player here, and I'll kind of explain why. Giannis is an athletic prowess. He's a specimen. He's incredibly gifted athletically, seven foot tall, however many pounds, 240, 240 pounds, give or take. I think he's great 
uh, in around the rim, but he has not gotten a jump shot, and that continues to haunt Giannis throughout his career so far. And in a series in which, knowing what we know about the Brooklyn Nets, where we know that this team is not great defensively, they could have been historically bad uh, defensively, I think they ended up around 23rd in total defense at the end of the season. But it's a team that is going to absolutely shoot the lights out. Even without James Harden in the starting lineup, you still have two offensive superstars in Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, and they will score the basketball on you. So when you need to catch up, when you need to keep up with a team like the Brooklyn Nets and your main scorer, your number one guy is Giannis Antetokounmpo, a guy that does not have a jump shot and probably will never have a consistent jump shot. And even if he does develop a jump shot, does he have the confidence to take those shots? Because you see the knock on Ben Simmons and Philadelphia is he does not have a jump shot and even though we've seen the ability to shoot three-pointers at times for Ben Simmons the click the, the mental click is not there he's still hesitant to take those shots and when watching this series here and I've watched both get both games even the game two blowout it reminded me a lot the, the thought was going through my head of what James Harden said about Giannis Antetokounmpo a little over a year ago when they had their little beef during the All-Star game last season. It was in February of 2020, and Giannis jokingly said that he would rather draft Kemba Walker for his All-Star team as opposed to James Harden because Kemba Walker can actually pass. And while that was meant as a joke, uh, James Harden didn't take it as such. And James Harden essentially responded with, well, I wish I was seven foot tall and could drive the lane and dunk at will and just be athletically gifted like Giannis is, but I'm not. Being seven foot and running and dunking takes no skill. The way that I play the game, I have to have offensive skill. I have to constantly work on my game. That's not a verbatim quote, but that's the general gist of what James Harden said in response to that. And at the time, you know, it was kind of a, a jab to the mouth of Giannis. Giannis was a jab to the mouth of Harden. It was a back and forth. But one year later, what we have seen in this series so far, and again, the Nets have known to be all seen to be an offensive powerhouse team, bad defensively, but if there's one team that would have been able to stop the Brooklyn Nets from getting out of the East, it was the Milwaukee Bucks, and the Milwaukee Bucks are just floundering, and they're being absolutely destroyed by the Nets so far in the series, because as James Harden said over a year ago, Giannis is an athletic specimen, but he's not a skillful basketball player. He's not the worst basketball player. You do see some, you know, some good basketball tendencies in his game. He's not the worst, but when it comes down to it, when you need an offensive bucket to be able to keep up with the Brooklyn Nets, who is going to get it for you on that basketball team? Is it Giannis? Probably not. Is it Chris Middleton? Probably, but he's been playing not so well the first couple of games. Neither has Drew Holiday. And again, it's not all on Giannis so far. Drew and Chris need to have better games in in order to be able to keep up with the Brooklyn Nets, but Giannis is the superstar of this Brooklyn, excuse me, or of this Milwaukee Bucks team. He is going to get most of the attention, he's going to get most of the praise, and he is going to get most of the criticism as I am applying to him right now. Giannis Antetokounmpo reminds me a lot of Russell Westbrook, and Russell Westbrook has been playing in this league long enough that we as casual basketball fans can rationally 
understand what what, uh, what Russell Westbrook is. Russell Westbrook is an athletic specimen, just like Giannis is. He's probably the most athletic point guard to ever play the game of basketball. Nobody plays the game with as much enthusiasm, with as much passion, with as much energy and uh, violence, I would say, as Russell Westbrook does. When Russell Westbrook is 100% healthy and playing his heart out. Extremely high motor, but... We have been watching Russell Westbrook long enough to know that he is not an efficient offensive player. He is not going to be able to hit down that shot more often than not when you need it, as opposed to somebody else on the team. That's why Russell Westbrook is never the first offensive option on most teams. He's the facilitator. He's the rebounder. He's the triple-double guy that's going to get all the headlines and break all the records. But offensively speaking, we have seen his game decline enough over the years to say, okay, Russell Westbrook is an athletic specimen, probably the most athletic point guard to ever play the game, but he's just not that efficient offensively, and that's what hurts him. That's probably what's going to prevent him from getting a championship his entire career unless he piggybacks off a couple of other superstars uh, like the Brooklyn Nets. So we know that about Russell Westbrook. And I see similar traits in Giannis, and I think we are slowly seeing that develop over time because it doesn't it doesn't matter you know who they are playing. If Giannis can't out bully that team, or he can't keep up in terms of scoring and you know physically dominate that team, they struggle and they lose out of the playoffs. The Miami Heat team last year, tough defensively, very well put together chemistry wise, very hard working team, not easy to bully. Removed in five games. The year before that, you run into the Kawhi Leonard-led Toronto Raptors team. A very well-put-together team. Kawhi Leonard is stalwart defensively. One of the more clutch playoff performers that there is in the NBA. You lose in six games, I believe. I think you lose your last four as well. The trend is starting to get there. Where Giannis, again, is the seven-foot version of Russell Westbrook, and we need to start realizing this, that he is an athletic freak, but unless he does not develop a sh jump shot, and even if he does develop a jump shot, because as I said, you see people like Ben Simmons develop a jump shot but still be scared to shoot the basketball. Even if he doesn't, even if he does rather, develop a jump shot, he's never going to be that offensively efficient to be able to deliver a team to a playoff series victory in an NBA, which is clearly dominated by offense. That's kind of just the way that it is. James Harden, even though he made those comments a year ago, was absolutely right about Giannis Antetokounmpo. You know, you wish you could be seven foot tall, run and drive the lane and dunk it with ease and just be athletically gifted, a, a creation of God if you believe in one. You can be that, but it takes serious skill to play the game of basketball. And I think that's a major difference, and that's what set ba sets basketball apart from uh, you know, other big sports in America, like the NFL, in which athleticism in itself is a skill that can be exploitable. And athleticism is oftentimes preferred to mechanical skill at the sport. But when it comes to basketball, skill is incredibly important. And we're seeing more and more how guys with high motors, with incredible athletic ability, cannot keep up and cannot produce enough offensively in an NBA in which offense is the king. Offense is what's going to win you championships. So at the time of this recording, and I know this is going to come out much, much later, 
uh, <laughs> unfortunately, just because of how I'm making these shows. At the time of this recording, I'm recording this on a Tuesday, the Mavericks and Clippers series ended a couple of days ago, and I've been spending a lot of my time thinking about whether or not when it came to the storybook ending of this series, was it a story about how the Mavericks choked the series away, or was it a story on how the Clippers came back to win the series? Because my, my initial take on the series was, okay, the Clippers maybe, in a crazy, crazy world, needed to go down by two games, be pushed into you know the locker by the bully, even though the Mavericks defense, I wouldn't exactly call that bullying. Uh, <laughs> maybe the Clippers needed to be pushed into that locker. They needed to have their fight or flight engaged. They needed to have something to kick their motor into gear so they could be able to win some games, play like the Clippers should be playing on paper, and have success in the playoffs. And I think there's a lot of truth in that statement. I will back myself up on that. But I also feel like there's a lot of truth in the statement that the Mavericks choked away this series. And I'm very on the fence about that. But if you forced me over one side of the fence at this point, I think I would probably say that the Mavericks choked this series away more than anything. And I think the, the reason that I think that is I take a look at Game 6 and say uh, Game 6 is absolutely a game that the Mavericks should have won. Uh, Luka Doncic gave you a great start early on. You know, that was kind of his thing throughout the series. He would explode for anywhere from 20 to 30 points in the first half and then just kind of run out of gas by the third and fourth quarter because he had no help. Game 6... Apart from, you know, games one and two when the Mavericks were just shooting the lights out from under the Clippers, apart from games one and two, game six is the game that I look to in which you could say, okay, Luka's actually getting some help in this game. Game five was the situation in which Luka dropped 42 points, but more than anything else, they took advantage of a game in which the Clippers were not shooting the ball effectively. I think Kawhi went 7th from 19 from that game. Paul George didn't shoot the ball much better either. So Game 5, the Game 5 win against the Clippers was a situation in which Luka exploded for 40-plus points and the Clippers just had a bad shooting night. Game 6 was a game in which it was a closer game. The Lake, uh, I almost said the Lakers. The Clippers are shooting the ball better. You know, Luka's doing his thing, but... He, uh, Luca actually had help in that game. Hardaway Jr. was making shots. Brunson was making a couple of shots. Uh, Baban uh, Marjanovic was being a presence in the paint there. And you felt like, okay, Luca's actually getting enough help for them to win the series. But they ended up losing that game. And then you saw Game 7, everybody was just out of gas and Luca just couldn't do anymore. And now it's a conversation about Luca does not have enough help in Dallas. They need to get him some more superstars. And the big question, really, where is Kristaps Porzingis? Everybody's hyper-focusing hyper on Porzingis as to why the Mavericks lost the series because Luka was amazing. He was incredible to watch, but Kristaps is supposed to be that second star on the team. And, you know, you, you know why they call him the unicorn. Uh, it's because he doesn't exist. He did not exist in that series. He was nowhere to be found. But... The fault is not on Kristaps Porzingis, it's actually on Rick Carlisle, I think, more than anything else, because if you listen to the post-game press conferences, Rick Carlisle, who is the head coach of the Mavericks, he's been one of the, he's been the head coach of the Mavericks for a long time, one of the longest tenured coaches in the NBA, which kind of strikes me as weird, because it was a rookie mistake that he ended up making, it was a lack of adjustments, really, that ended up, you know, helping the Mavericks lose this series, Rick Carlisle essentially said, oh, we're using, you know, Porzingis in a way. We're using Porzingis in a way in which, you know, he's going to stretch the floor. We want him to shoot threes. We want him to basically be a floor stretcher for us. And 
Although that is something that Kristaps Porzingis can do. It's not like he doesn't have a jump shot, because he does. You know, spreading the floor and shooting jumpers was one of the things that was utilized very well in Kristaps Porzingis' time in New York. But you don't want to delegate Kristaps Porzingis to that, because he's not consistent enough from there. And it's mind-blowing to me that as Rick Carla as a coach, you see Luka Doncic moving heaven and earth, and then you see Kristaps kind of just being adjacent on the side and not really contributing. Look, Kristaps is supposed to be that number two star in that team. He's supposed to be giving Luka help, and you're physically preventing him from doing what is best for Kristaps Porzingis in order to help Luka Doncic? It makes no sense to me. Kristaps is a great, you know, low post player. He's got a couple of really good post moves. And sure, he's great in the pick and pop as well. But why would you stifle a player's ability like that? Why would you do that? If the argument is all about, okay, let's go and help Luka win some basketball games, why are you physically, you know, preventing or restraining Porzingis from playing his type of basketball game and just delegating him to the corner three ball or delegating him to the pick and pop on a three-point line? For me, it's not that Porzingis played bad, it's that he was put into bad positions by his coaching. Rick Carlisle absolutely should have utilized Kristaps Porzingis in a better way, and I know Lucas, the star of the show, he's the ball handler, and Kristaps is no longer the number one guy on the team like he was in New York, but that should not prevent you from allowing Porzingis to play his game. Because if you allow Porzingis to play his game and give him enough, enough touches in a manner in which you know he can be effective, that is only going to help Luka Doncic, and that is only going to help your team basketball team win games and the fact that Rick Carlo said no we're going to use him in a basically exclusively pick and pop scenario we're going to play him at the four we're going to use him as a floor spacer I understand that the Mavericks don't have that many three-point shooters that many efficient three-point shooters but that's still not an excuse enough for you to just kind of bottleneck Porzingis like that it's not Porzingis's fault that he played so horribly and just you know shot you know a bunch of jump shots sure could he have shot the ball better? Absolutely. Nobody's debating that he could sh have shot the ball better. But as a coach in Rick Carlisle, especially somebody who's as experienced as Rick Carlisle is, it blows my mind that they just kind of kept Porzingis away from the action like that, didn't give him enough touches, didn't give him the opportunity to get into the game. And sure, even though Kristaps wasn't complaining about his position, I can point to that as the main reason why the Mavericks weren't able to close out the Clippers. Apart from the other reason that the Mavericks just did not play good defense. They played basically no good defense for the rest of the series. It, it, it just, it makes no sense to me. That's the one thing that you can point to and say, hey, if Kristaps Porzingis was let off his leash a little bit and gave Luka some help, you gave Kristaps some touches, that might have changed the fate of that series. And I'm not saying, you know, you know that's that's a hypothetical, that's a what if, because at the end of the day, and people will still point to this, Kristaps still needs to make jump shots. But I, I don't understand how you have a number two guy and you kind of just relegate him to the side. It, it, it appears to be kind of a common trend now among big men in the NBA that they're kind of delegated if they can shoot the basketball from three. They're kind of pushed out that way to space the floor because spacing the floor and shooting three-pointers is so important in today's game. 
you, there is examples of this all over the NBA. You talk about LaMarcus Aldridge, who used to be a low post player, mid, you know, mid range jump shooter. He was further pushed out to the three point line. He was not as successful later on his, in his career. Uh, Joel Embiid, uh, every now and again, he gets kind of pushed out to the three point line when really he's just a dominant low post threat. He's pushed out to the three point line. His efficiency and his effectiveness goes down the tank completely. Uh, man, I, I, <laughs> I, I, there's a lot of possibilities, and I surely just cannot, you know, list them all. But when you force kind of big players, you know, big men that can shoot to delegate them to only shoot, you're just minimizing their effectiveness. And uh, I think that that's where the clip, uh, excuse me, that's where not only where the Clippers won the series, that's where the Mavericks lost the series. And it's not just, bec- and it's not because you know Kristaps Porzingis was an ineffective player that he just wasn't playing well. He just was not being utilized well by his coach. And the adjustments should have been made about game four or game five uh, for Rick Carlisle saying, okay, Luca is carrying this team. We need to give Luca some help. Kristaps, I want you off the three point line. We're going to change up the lineup. I want you off the point line. We're going to give you some more touches because Luca is getting gassed by the third and fourth quarter. Um, if I'm the head coach, I would have noticed that and made the change immediately. And to say that Rick Carlisle is one of the most experienced coaches in the NBA, and he's utilizing his second biggest star in the team like that. Look, this series, this series lost for the Mavericks, it's on Rick Carlisle. It's not on Kristaps Porzingis, although I think it is funny and kind of amusing that now Kristaps Porzingis is the new pandemic P or the playoff P or whatever they call it. Um, amusing, but kind of inaccurate because this, this series loss, I think it's on Rick Carlisle more than anything else. And that's the end of the show today. Thank you all so much for tuning in and listening. As always, this has been the Hard-Headed Sports Podcast, episode number 46. I am Nick Ryan. With that being said, stay hard-headed, but have a nice day.